You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. There used to be so many abandoned-looking buildings in Oakland. You didn't even really notice most of them, unless you were paying attention. Houses with boarded-up windows, ancient warehouses, obviously covered with graffiti, office buildings surrounded by rusty barbed wire. You get the idea. There's been a ton of demolitions and renovations in the last year or two as this building boom has taken off, but there are still a fair amount of empty structures around town. Most just kind of blend into the landscape, but there's one that everybody seems to notice. Here's journalist Sam Lefebvre. Nowadays, yeah, it looks very striking. You know, you see the classic attempts at abating graffiti, which leaves these sort of off-colored patches of paint mixed with fresh tags, mixed with char from the fire from 2014. You know, the windows are boarded up. Um, Yeah, it's this strange tannish, pinkish kind of monument there on the corner. What this monument represents, and this building that we're talking about, really does feel like a monument at this point, because it's just visually dominated a very prominent corner for so long. Anyway, what this monument represents depends on your perspective. It could be a symbol of what happened to one of Oakland's thriving black business corridors and the exodus of a community. Or it could be a symbol of how the revolutionary dreams of the Occupy era went down in flames, literally. Or it could symbolize the East Bay's insane real estate market, where the same piece of property could sell for $90,000 in 2012 and then sell for $3.2 million a few years later. If you've traveled along Martin Luther King Jr. way any time in, oh, the last few decades, you probably already know the building I'm talking about. It's a two-story building. It's, it's on the corner of MacArthur and MLK. The location is really interesting because it's right by MacArthur Bar Station, and it's really like just outside of, of Temescal. So that, that intersection is kind of the gateway from West Oakland to Temescal. If you still need help picturing it, imagine a raggedy patchwork quilt that somebody used to mop up a nasty spill. That's what this building looks like. It's hard to miss. I've been interested in it ever since it it was a squat. And at the time, I lived around the corner on 37th and Market. So it was something that I would walk by just about every day. Even though Sam walked by it all the time and eventually ended up seeing a bunch of bands there back when it was a squat, he didn't know that much about the building until recently. There's an online magazine called Open Space. It's a project of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. A few months ago, Open Space asked Sam to write some articles about Oakland. And this was one of the stories he decided to dig into. The first thing I did was I assembled all of the hundreds of pages of 
documents from the various years-long legal squabbles between the squatters and, and the owner's attorneys. And I read all of that stuff. And honestly, it was so, so much of it was so baffling and confusing. Squatters is kind of a loose term for people who are trying to live in a place that they don't own without paying rent. I remember going over it with, um, actually with my mom, who's an attorney. And I was like, mom, like, what? And she was like, these people don't seem to, I don't think they're lawyers. And she was right. They, they weren't lawyers. And then, of course, when I started interviewing Sarah and Chloe Watlington, um, who are really involved with the legal battle, you know, I realized, oh, the paper trail far as the court battle is so convoluted because they were really just throwing crap at a wall to like try to see what sticks. That paper trail was just the beginning of a path that led back to a black businessman who owned the building for decades. His name is still on the sign that hangs above the entrance. The sign that reminds us that this building wasn't always an eyesore. It was once a monument to redemption, even hope. But that was in a very different era than the one we're living in now. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. That big red and white sign that's been hanging on the corner of MLK and MacArthur for more than 30 years, it says RCA. That used to stand for Radio Corporation of America, back when RCA was an electronics company. Under the RCA letters, the signs got that famous logo of a dog listening to an old school record player. The sign used to light up, but it hasn't for a long time. Below the RCA logo, it says Terry's TV. Sam's goal when he started researching the story was to find out who Terry is or was. His first discovery was that Terry was the nickname of a man named Felton Therio. The only thing I knew about Felton prior was a really ghastly thing, and that was that he'd... Um, He'd gone to prison for about five years in the 60s for, uh, for murdering his wife. And I found, because I had his name, and so I found the court records of that. And that was really the only thing I knew. Sam figured out through looking at ownership records that Felton Terrio had died back in 2005. His wife, his fourth wife as it turned out, inherited the property. Her name is Susan Rogers, and Sam tracked her down. She works at a Safeway in the Montclair neighborhood, and she agreed to talk. She remembered things about him in really incredibly vivid detail. Namely, one of the first things she told me was how they met, and she remembered where it was, which was Sweet Jimmy's. Sweet Jimmy's was a club on San Pablo that closed back in 2006. It's the new parish now. And she remembered his outfit and how he approached her, and that he then asked her on a date, and then the next date was to the Monterey Jazz Festival, and that they went to this festival every year for the next, you know, 20 some odd years and, until he died. 
Susan said that Felton grew up in Louisiana and served in World War II. When he and his first wife came to the Bay Area in the 60s, he got a job at the DMV, and she was working at UC Berkeley. Apparently, he shot her to death while they were going through a divorce. I don't want to downplay this tragic murder, but I don't know anything else about it. Other than that, he went to prison. After Felton was released, he purchased the property on Martin Luther King Way, which was still called Grove Street back then. He bought it in the 70s, and the property contains two structures. It has the two-story mixed-use building with commercial below and residential up top. And then on the same parcel is a two-story Victorian. So by the time he bought it, he'd learned basically the electrical trade. He'd been an instructor at Laney. It was, I think, a skill that he first picked up while he was incarcerated. So he, he bought it with the intention of running a small business out of the bottom floor. And that was um, Terry's sound house. His name is Felton Therio, but Therio became Terry to most people who knew him. So it was called Terry's sound house. Felton's family left Louisiana to join him in the East Bay, and they got really involved with civic life. Felton's sister even became a principal. After growing up as second-class citizens in the South... Oakland, during this era, allowed Felton to be somebody. He had connections with people in politics. He knew nearby business owners. He was sort of an avid nightlife guy. His friends called him Doughboy because he was flashy. Besides the electronics business on the first floor, Felton was also a landlord. He rented out the top floor of the RCA building, and he had tenants in the house next door as well. I talked to one person whose family lived upstairs and in the Victorian, and the way she described it was they lived there for decades. There were multiple generations fanning out into different units. From everything I've gathered, it was stable, long-term residents for um, you know predominantly black people in West Oakland. And at that time, you had... Gertie's car wash across the street, which was sort of an anchor. You had Marcus Bookstore. Marcus Books is the oldest black-owned bookstore in the country. It started in San Francisco, but they've had the Oakland shop since 1976. Susan Rogers described it as sort of a corridor of Grove Street at the time being, as she said, uh, black-owned and thriving. And Terry would spend a lot of time just sort of standing in front of his shop, and no one would mess with him because he, for various reasons, commanded that kind of respect. Flash forward to around the late 90s, early 2000s. Felton was very old, and he he had one employee the entire time. His name was Cho, and no one could remember more of the name. And it seemed like Felton wanted to sort of hand over the business to Cho, but it never quite worked out, I think in part because there was a, sort of a language and a cultural barrier. I think Cho was a Korean immigrant. So when he got older and he wasn't able to work anymore, basically the building, the, the shop, it, it just shuttered, it closed. And then he decided that he wanted to sell it and everyone moved out. I'm not sure if that was 
contentious, but I know for a few years before his death, it was vacant and it was sort of deteriorating and that kind of thing. Felton Terrio died in 2005, leaving the property to Susan, who sold it shortly after. She also inherited the building that her and Felton were living in over in East Oakland. She just sold that property last year and moved out to Stockton. She was the last person from her family to leave this area. Susan still works in Oakland, but it's a long commute. So she's trying to get transferred to a Safeway closer to her new house. This story of Felton and Susan, it's part of a bigger story. Felton and his family from Louisiana followed a, a really common migratory path for black people at the time that really defined a lot of Oakland's cultural identity for you know the latter half of the 20th century. And the exodus of Susan, who grew up in the South Bay, and her family similarly follows a, a trend of, of, you know, the black population in the Bay Area kind of just dramatically declining. Just one more thing before we move on to the next chapter. Here's what happened when Sam initially approached Susan. The first thing she said was, can you help me get the sign? Meaning the RCA sign on the corner that, that advertised Felton's shop. It makes sense why Susan would want this, even though it would be an extremely unwieldy memento. The neighborhood has changed so much over the decades. It's a really different place than what Susan remembers. But at least one thing is still there. That sign hanging on the corner with her husband's name on it. In the wake of the foreclosure crisis, you know, there were really just scores and scores of vacancies throughout the flatlands in Oakland, and it gave people a lot of ideas. Squatting seems to come in waves. Whenever there are buildings or land that isn't being utilized or watched very closely, there are always people willing to fill that void, especially folks who can't afford to pay rent. During the Great Recession, after the economic collapse of 2007, there were a lot of people in Oakland who fit that description. Dozens of squats popped up during those years. Most were pretty low-key, but the situation on the corner of MLK and MacArthur was unique. I remember walking by and in the former garage slash former horse stable, there was for a while a, a free store. And so I remember walking by and poking my head in there and being like, what is this? And, you know, people telling me about it. And I think that was during Occupy. The free store that Sam just mentioned, it was basically like a thrift shop, except you could just take whatever you wanted without paying. I'm not sure if anybody was living in the garage at that time, but starting around 2010, 2011, there were definitely people staying in the other two buildings on Felton's former property. These two squats came to be known as Hot Mess and RCA. So Hot Mess refers to the Victorian on this parcel and, and RCA refers to the two-story mixed-use building. I'm told that Hot Mess started first 
And the way it was described to me is the people who started Hot Mess were more, as I was told, experienced squatters, whereas the people at RCA were a lot of sort of post-college radicals, at the time activists who were kind of weaned on the protests against University of California tuition hikes around 2009. I think that radicalized a lot of a lot of people who were in college at the time in California, and um, a lot of them became involved with Occupy, and that sort of camp, you know, colored the the people who ended up sort of starting the RCA occupation. A lot of people cycled through these squats. So Sam is quick to point out that this broad description is just one perspective. Full disclosure, I'm friends with some of the folks who lived at RCA, and when they started the space, they definitely weren't rookies in the squatting game. And a bunch of the people that lived there never went to college either. So it's not really easy to separate the houses into two clear-cut categories. But the main point is that neither house was just longtime squatters or Occupy folks. My understanding is there was um, effort to reach out to longtime locals and neighbors who'd maybe been rendered homeless by just sort of the, the foreclosure crisis that was happening at the time. I know one person who stayed there, they'd met because the person was sort of collecting cans from them to, you know, do some recycling for a living, and that person ended up staying there. Um, I was told that someone whose house was, you know, foreclosed nearby ended up staying there. So there was some of that sort of outreach and integration. Some folks who had lost their homes during the recession just crashed at the squat for a few nights while they figured out their options. Some ended up staying a lot longer. The squats ended up being a kind of safety net for people in the area and for squatters from other parts of Oakland who got booted from their spaces. Oh, and there was one other dwelling on the property, or maybe I should say above the property. The treehouse? Yeah. So, and that's still there. Um, the squatters, yeah, they, they created a garden in, in the backyard and on this adjacent lot. And they also built a treehouse where someone lived for a time. And that's still there. And uh, Susan Rogers, when we went and I you know, met up with her there for a photo shoot and to kind of hang out and look around. And she actually hadn't been by for, for years. She loved the treehouse. She thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I don't want to underplay the drama because there was plenty of that, and sometimes it got pretty ugly. But this treehouse kind of embodies the spirit of the whole project. When the squat had parties, which was often, they were creative and adventurous and playful. There were poetry nights and photo exhibits, punk and hip-hop shows. There were sort of mini-raves that I remember dancing all night long at. I even got to DJ a party at RCA once. They wanted me to play soul music and oldies, so I did. And I remember playing a Sugar Pie DeSanto song because the legendary singer used to live just down the block on Telegraph, so it was kind of like a tribute to her. And even though RCA was kind of dirty and it didn't smell great either, people got down and they smiled and it was all free. <laughs> Got rhythm all in my shoes. 
The billboard, the squatters sort of just repeatedly would go up on top. Well, the way the the piece opens is with Chloe Watlington, who is one of the key sources for the piece and a squatter. You know, I say she used to wake up to the sound of a ladder clinking against the side of her squat. And that would mean that contractors from Clear Channel Outdoor, the advertising firm, were going up there to put some ad for what have you, uh, insurance or a movie or whatever it was. And that was a, a sign to them like, oh, I guess it's time for us to go add, you know, our own touch. So they would go up there and using paint or spray paint, kind of whatever was around, it seemed like, and add these sort of funny, pithy, radical slogans. As the legal battle progressed, they actually also used it to send messages, sort of taunting messages to the owner's attorneys because they were coming by to take pictures for various reasons. So at one point, you know, I was told when they wrote Eat My Shorts on the billboard, it was a a message to their um, opponents in court. Eat my shorts. All right, I'll eat your shorts. Yeah, eat my shorts. The billboard was massive, and it was right at a really busy intersection. So that message came across loud and clear. But let's take a step back for a minute. Here's how a bunch of squatters ended up in a court battle with a real estate developer in the first place. The record of this property changing hands is really convoluted and, and, and tied up with all of these um, planned and failed endeavors and, you know, these various ideas and visions for developing the property were sunk by, you know, the market and, the, you know, the recession and the foreclosure crisis and all kinds of things. But originally, Susan Rogers, after Felton died, she sold the property to Peter Consos who's a local real estate investor, for about $900,000. And that includes both structures, the, what would become RCA as well as Hot Mess. And Contos turned around and sold it to a company called Grove Park that was created by a local housing developer called AF Evans. So Contos, he flipped it. He did a kind of a, a quick flip, bought it for 900 k turned around and sold it for $1.2 Grove Park planned on developing it. They planned on creating a 19-unit condo building. And to finance this idea, they got a loan from a bank, and then they got $800,000 from the city of Oakland you know, redevelopment agency, basically from a, a program you know, des- specifically designed to uh, incentivize rehabilitating, you know, neglected, blighted property. But Grove Park's parent company, AF Evans, you know, right after they get this deal in place and they have this project all set up, Grove Park and AF Evans basically go, they basically go belly up. This was a rough time for entrepreneurs. Just in case you forgot, here's a little clip of the business analyst, Jim Kramer, on CNBC that kind of captures the mood. I have talked to the heads of almost every single one of these firms in the last 72 hours, and he has no idea what it's like out there. None! My people 
have been in this game for 25 years, and they are losing their jobs, and these firms are going to go out of business, and he's nuts. They're nuts. They know nothing. AF Evans files for bankruptcy in 2009. You know, in news reports at the time, it's the company's executives were like, the condo market is completely collapsing. We don't know what to do. And AF Evans had secured the loan that Grove Park took out. So the you know, company that secured this loan from a bank is, is filing for bankruptcy. This money that the city had given to... The city gave money to a company that, whose parent company is filing for bankruptcy. So this money just sort of evaporates. You know? And part of that is, is public public funds. It's money you know, from taxpayers. Spoiler alert, Oakland taxpayers never got that money back. Between 2009, when AF Evans went bankrupt, and 2012, it was just sort of derelict. There was no clear owner, or at least the clear owner, like, barely existed on paper anymore, and its, you know, its assets were being seized and this kind of thing. So in 2012, it was auctioned on the steps of the Alameda County Superior Courthouse. And by that time, the, the occupation had started. And the squatters heard about this. So they go down to the courthouse and they do this outrageous um, sort of action to try to disrupt the auction. And right, they're making noise and they're yelling at people and this kind of thing. And anyway, the auction goes on. They just move it inside the courthouse and... Don't let the squatters in, right? I talked to a friend who was there, and she remembers wearing a wig and dressing up in business clothes so she could impersonate a real bidder. She did not win the auction. So this auction happens. It, it of course, has all these delinquent taxes, and it has, like, liens on it and stuff. So whoever buys it is going to be saddled with some money that they owe to the city and county. So the property sells for a mere $90,000 to like a Texas holding company called Acquired Capital. To put that in perspective, the property that had been bought for $900,000 and immediately sold for $1.2 million in 2006, by 2012 was selling for 90,000 bucks on the, the courthouse steps, which really just shows what happened to uh, to real estate, you know, in the interim. They know nothing! For another twist, Acquired Capital, the Texas holding company that buys it at auction, turns around and sells it to a company called Rockridge Properties, which turns out is partly controlled by the same person who'd, who'd sold it for $1.2 million six years prior, Peter Consos. So you have... The guy who buys it in 06 turns around and flips it, able to make a little money. Six years later, is able to get it again for just like $265,000. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Not quite. What they didn't anticipate is that when they reacquired this property, it'd be occupied by dozens of squatters in the midst of the Occupy movement in Oakland, and they weren't about to um, vacate <laughs> without a fight. I asked some friends who lived at RCA in Hot Mess if there were really dozens of people living there, and they just laughed. 
By this time, people had squatted every nook and cranny. Like, random folks would just move in and take over a corner of the basement or commandeer a couch. So many people were crashing there, there's no way to get an accurate head count. It was all extremely precarious. Rockridge Properties reacquired the property in 2012 and, you know, immediately turned around and, and served them with what's called a, a forcible detainer, which is basically a, a, a lawsuit that generally precedes an eviction. Some people took the eviction threat more seriously than others. A few people were really hoping to save the compound, as it was sometimes called. Others just wanted to postpone the inevitable for as long as possible. The squatters were able to tie this process up in court for almost three years, which is wild, because they didn't hire a lawyer. They were all representing themselves. Going three years in Oakland without paying rent is certainly an accomplishment, but the stress of imminent eviction wasn't the only cost of this living arrangement. There was people cycling in and out, so, you know, responsibilities were falling sort of disproportionately on, on people who were there more regularly or who felt sort of more committed to, to upkeep or the space, and that sowed a certain amount of resentment. One of the biggest controversies around the space was the issue of gentrification. The white squatters faced accusations that by moving into a predominantly black neighborhood, they were part of the problem. The occupation didn't get past some of this conflict because it was all brought to you know, a really sudden halt by um, a fire, which occurred right around the same time that it looked like they didn't have many more routes for legal recourse in court. They'd basically been dealt a couple of defeats and it didn't look so good on the legal end. Meanwhile, there's all this tension internally. And then in the middle of all of this, yeah, there's a fire that breaks out. Over the past decade or so, there's been at least two other squats along this same stretch of MLK that suffered fires right around the time they were facing eviction. Some people suspected that frustrated landlords might have been involved with those other fires. At RCA, though, the fire was the result of a personal beef involving one of the residents. The way it was described to me is that someone lit a, a shopping cart full of trash on fire and basically pushed it through the door. And then, you know, the fire department came. The place didn't burn down or anything. Fire department came, put it out, and then that was basically the end of, of the occupation. The big takeaway for me is for... Um, going on like if you with not counting the occupation you know it's just been it's just been derelict for like going on 20 years and that's despite you know the city throwing money at it that that went down the drain and in the interim while there's so many people who desperately want somewhere who need somewhere affordable to live in Oakland there are people who've managed to make a ton of money off the property while it just sits there, benefiting no one. As far as I know, both of the buildings, Hot Mess and RCA, have been vacant since 2014. Rockridge Properties, which bought the whole parcel for 
$265,000, recently sold it for $3.2 million. The new owner is a nonprofit developer called Resources for Community Development. Their plan is to tear everything down and construct a 32-unit building for low-income tenants and people with disabilities. On their application for city funding to help out with this project, the cover sheet of their proposal featured a photo of the RCA building while it was still being squatted. In huge bubble letters, the billboard on top reads, housing for all. One thing I was thinking about while I was writing it is I think the um, current sort of crisis around homelessness and the, you know, just how common encampments are in West Oakland in particular, I think is the one sort of like underappreciated factor and why homelessness is so much more, is so visible right now on top of the fact that it's more common. But I think a lot of homelessness was masked sort of around the foreclosure crisis because people were sheltered. A lot of people were taking shelter in these vacancies. And so rather than on the sidewalk and now there, you know, isn't the same rate of vacancy. And so it's been thrust into, into the commons. People have been squatting in Oakland since the very beginning of the town itself. Back when all this land was owned by the Peralta family, white settlers moved here and built houses and farms, even though they had no legal title. Oakland's first mayor was basically a squatter who knew how to manipulate the courts. This is obviously a lot different than homeless people and anarchists moving into neglected properties. But squatting mutates to fit the times. With today's sky-high property values, owners are keeping a much closer eye on their assets than before. So there doesn't seem to be much squatting happening in the East Bay right now. But when the next crisis happens, and there's always a next crisis, everything could change. Or maybe the next wave could happen even sooner. Yeah, very. I mean, it very well could. One of the biggest owners of derelict property in the city of Oakland is the city of Oakland itself, which is something you don't, you don't hear very often. And, and I think there's a lot of people who have serious valid issues with the city's policy around how it uses public lands. And I think squatting could be a very interesting tool to sort of agitate for, you know, more sort of equitable use of public lands that's more beneficial to the communities immediately around them. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. I'll be posting some really cool photos related to this story on social media, so don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday. You can find all the links at eastbayyesterday.com. For this episode, I want to thank Open Space, which is edited by Claudia LaRocco and Gordon Failer. You can check out that publication at openspace.sfmoma.org. Besides Sam, the other people I talked to for this episode don't really want to be named publicly, but thanks, you know who you are. If you're interested in hearing more about Oakland squatting history, check out the article titled Hilarity Burns by Shane Bauer. That's H-E-L-L-A-R-I-T-Y. 
you can find that through the website 48 Hills. And there are some really interesting parallels between the RCA hot mess story and this other squat that used to be on MLK. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from Dave Depper, Zero V, Stefan Siebert, Studio Noir, Sugar Pie DeSanto, and Broke for Free. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.